Well, as the title g- gets it, it reverses the issue, right? Everybody knows about toxic masculinity, right? This is the idea that uh, masculinity is in and of itself bad. There's something about masculinity that, that is harmful. And she's pushing back on that. And she's pushing back on that with data. Uh, she's doing surveys, particularly of thousands upon thousands of evangelical Christians, to look at what, um, look at what the data actually says about how they live. So again, um, there's an accusation in culture that Christian teaching on manhood or Christian teaching uh, of what it means to be a husband is oppressive to women, right? That it's, that it's ultimately harmful to women or it stifles women. And uh, this is one of the pieces of data that she gives early on. If you actually divide out, and this is a very important division, if you divide out between devout evangelicals and nominal evangelicals, uh, the data is startlingly different. Does that make sense? I mean, you know, on the news they say evangelicals do this in this percentage. Well, if you actually dig down on that data and look and divide it according to devotion, uh, it's very different. So she divine, de- defines devout as somebody who attends church three to four times a month and uh, nominal as maybe they go two or three times a year. All right, And when you divide that way... Here's what the data says. Um, devout men, devout evangelical men, uh, are the most, they're the least oppressive. There's the least domestic violence, the least divorce of any category in society. All right? Let me say it again. Devout Christian men, men who go to church regularly, hear the Bible taught regularly, are the least oppressive group in society. Guess what the most oppressive is? self-identifying evangelicals who don't go to church that much. All right? That communicates volumes. All right? So there's a truth to the accusation, but the truth is it's people who name the name of evangelical, but who actually don't endeavor in their lives to really dig down and follow the Bible's teaching about what it means to be a husband and a man. Uh, And that should give us pause. Because I think what it says is, oh, on the surface, there's something appealing about, oh, Bible says lead, man leads, yeah, right? And the Bible becomes your club to get what you want. Uh, instead of really recognizing what the biblical teaching is, that husbands are called to lead by being leaders in dying first, right? In being selfless first. Um, so that's one of the, the insights that she gives early on that I think is very helpful. And again, it should give us pause to ask, am I using Christianity to advance my personal agenda, or am I really letting it transform me and change me and shape how I am as a husband? She's got a lot of um, information on marriages and what makes for a happy marriage. And again, the data here is that what she calls the family-centered perspective makes for the happiest marriage. And I'll expand. In other words, if you have this family-centered perspective, um, there's the best data for quality marriages. And by family-centered, she means a couple of things. One, that marriage is permanent. It's for life. It's not just an option. And if we fall out of love, we'll move on. Uh, She also says it means that Marriage is ultimately about something bigger than your personal happiness. Now, here's what's interesting is the happiest marriages are the ones that say marriage is not about my personal happiness, right? When you don't pursue happiness as your primary end, uh, it produces happiness. Um, the, 
And I don't know if y'all are familiar. How many people are familiar with the whole debate between egalitarians and complementarians? Anybody at all familiar with that? I don't. I mean, we don't need to get into this that much, but there's a debate among evangelicals. Uh, what does it mean for a husband to lead the home? Complementarians will say, well, men and women are different and they have different roles. Egalitarians will say, no, men and women are equal and they should carry everything equally. All right. And it's a huge debate among evangelicals, sometimes a, a very ugly debate. What her data says is it doesn't matter what you believe about that. If you give yourself to the family-centered perspective, if you give yourself to biblical teaching, it makes for happier marriages. Does that make sense? In other words, maybe we should stop debating those issues amongst ourselves and just give ourselves to what the scriptures teach about what it means to be a loving husband, and that makes the biggest difference. And this is what I, I want to drill down on this because she says, here's the most decisive factor in a happy marriage. The most decisive factor is, do, is men doing what she calls the emotional work. And I think this is a place where we can challenge one another and keep one another accountable. Here's what she means by emotional work. She means uh, husbands expressing affection to their wives. She means husbands being attentive to the needs of their wives. Uh, she says it's uh, taking wives' view into account. Regardless, again, of whether they're complementarian or egalitarian, they consider their wives and her view, uh, their wives and their views. Um, they bond over shared interests and they share quality time. All right, let me say those again. Um, this is what she calls the emotional work: expressing affection, attentiveness to needs, taking wives' views into accounts bonding over shared interest and sharing quality time. It just struck me last night in last night's sermon that that's a pretty good descriptor of Elkanah, right? He was a, he was a man, I think, that did those things. Um, but notice what it says. It's emotional work. It's work men are called to do. And she says the happiest marriages are when men take those things seriously and do them. And again, they do them largely in devout evangelical circles. Um, another data point that she highlights is that theologically conservative men and women have the happiest marriages out there. All right. Theologically conservative men and women. All right. Um, another uh, point of data. She says that church attendance, again, back to this point about church attendance, is the most, the, the most reliable predictor of marital stability. Okay, those who attend church regularly um, have, uh, in the long term, the most stable marriages. And she says, in particular, regular church attendance steers men away from workaholism and careerism, right? Making work everything, which traditionally has been a place where men escape from some of the emotional work of marriage, right? And, and some of the difficult work of being a father. Um, there's a great quote from the church father, John Chrysostom, who lived in the fourth century. This just represents what Christians have always said about, um, about what it means to be uh, a married man. He said this, let everything take second place to care for our children, our bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? Um, usually when husbands are absorbed in workaholism, uh, it's wives and children that suffer. And it's always been a Christian teaching that we got to push back on that, right? That our, that our primary task in life comes from the Old Testament where we're called to pass on our faith to our children. 
Um, and again, she is celebrating masculinity, and she cites all kinds of data about what, what makes for masculinity. Um, but she also highlights what biblical courage looks like in men. Uh, and she cites things like this, acknowledging weakness, which is not something the macho man typically does, right? Acknowledging personal weakness. Um, facing your personal faults. Right? Acknowledging your faults and sins and facing them to deal with them. And again, I think this happens because even if you never explicitly state this, think about the heroes of the faith, particularly in the Old Testament. Abraham. What was the long lesson of Abraham's life? Being a husband and a father. Right? It was a long lesson in being a husband and a father. Moses. What's the virtue that the New Testament talks about most with Moses? He was a great leader, the, maybe the greatest leader in the Old Testament. What's the virtue? Anybody remember what the virtue is that he celebrated for? He was the meekest of all men. Okay, his leadership was not about his ego. I think that's what that means. His leadership of Israel was not about his ego, whether people respected him. It was about what was best uh, for the people of God. David. Now, David kind of a little bit more fits the traditional macho man, but think about what we know about David. I think the most important thing is that he repented when confronted with sin. All right? Certainly he was, I mean, he was a man of war, but how many macho men do you know that write poetry as well? All right? There are some different things about him, but the thing I would highlight is he was a man when confronted with his sin that repented. Um. So, again, I think this is kind of built into uh, understanding what it means to be a leader. And, again, we can apply this. You can apply this if you're single. You have responsibility to be a man and be a leader. Um, again, our heroes are people who are fathers. They are meek. They repent. doesn't mean they're weak. I mean, this is their unique form of strength. All right, I'm going to do a little quiz, okay? And everybody, just answer in your head. I don't want anybody to blurt out the answer. So here's the quiz. Who said this in the Bible? Every man should be ruler over his own household. Okay, think about it for a minute. I'll come back to it in a minute. Okay, uh, Piercy cites this about the idea of wifely submission. She says that 75% of evangelicals agree with both of these statements. Husbands should be the head of the home. And marriage is an equal partnership. All right. Both statements. 78% of evangelicals agree with both. Um, they see men as the head of the home, but they believe that the husband and wife are to be mutually submissive. And that's, to me, very encouraging because that's what Paul teaches, right? He says, he gives his teaching on being submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on under the rubric of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ to talk about what that submission looks like for a man and for a woman. And uh, one of the most valuable things that Percy does is talk about how in, in the original context of Christians' emergence into the Roman world, Christian marriage was absolutely revolutionary. All right? A couple of things you need to know about men in Roman society at the time. Uh, men were not expected to be emotionally intimate with their wives. Okay? They were not expected to be close to their wives. Wives were for having children. Roman men had, they could exploit all kinds of sexual opportunities outside of marriage. 
All right, marriage was just for having kids, um, and they did. And there was no uh, there was no judgment on that in Roman society. And men in Roman society often held their wives in low esteem. All right, and again, when we go back to Abraham. I would say it's similar in his culture, but I think one of the things we see going on with Abraham is him learning to respect his wife more and more as time goes by, and uh, God teaching him to respect his wife. Um, So Roman men could be, I mean, they could be promiscuous like crazy, and along comes Christianity and says, nope, guys, you're a wife for life. That's it. That was extraordinarily restrictive to Roman men, all right? And I I think we know that Christian teaching on sexual ethics is one of the things that comes under the most scrutiny in our society today. Well, it was true then as well, all right? It was true then as well. That was absolutely revolutionary teaching in that context. Um, It taught complete mutuality in conjugal rights, right? Paul says a wife's body doesn't belong to her, okay? Men are like, yeah. And then it says, and a husband's body doesn't belong to him, right? That was absolutely astoundingly, mind-bogglingly different than the, the culture around them. And it is for that reason, and others like it, that women flocked to the church in the early centuries of Christianity. Uh, because there is an extraordinary respect uh, and an extraordinary love uh, afforded to women, Okay, the Roman man was expected to be virile, dominant, macho, Andrew Tate-ish, all right, if you know who that, that uh, joker is. Um, and Paul says husbands should nourish and cherish their wives, all right? And that is not the macho stereotype. Um, okay, so anybody know, back to the quiz question, every man should be ruler in his own household. Anybody know who said it? King Ahasuerus. Esther's husband, a pagan tyrant, okay? Paul didn't say it. Uh, What did Paul say? And I think it's an important question because I think we think, yeah, that's what Paul says. No, Paul says what? Husbands, love your wives and lay down your life. He doesn't say subjugate your wife, make sure she submits. He says, lay your life down for your wives, love your wives. As we said a minute ago, do the emotional work. Um, So, Piercy spends a little bit of time discussing the head metaphor because she says husbands are the head of the wife. And if you think about this metaphor a little bit, and there's a lot of discussion on this, and we, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but um, how does this metaphor work? Okay? You know, one way of understanding is I'm the head, do what I say. But another way of thinking about it is this what happens when your head is separated from your body? The point of the head metaphor may be intimate connection. And coordination, right? Uh, the point being, there's this intimate connection, and we need to nurture it. Um, less than, you know, does your head really subjugate your body? Or does your head coordinate what your body does? Um, so again, the Bible never says that husbands should assert their authority aggressively. Um, it says that they should love their wives and lay down their lives for them. And again, headship may mean this. You go first, as I said, uh, for giving yourself to the good of your family. So let's talk about, I think, what headship means. It is a unique form of responsibility for the good of your family. All right? Uh, It is a unique form of responsibility for the good of your family. 
Um, it means being the first, yes, but it means being the first to love, being the first to serve, being the first to repent, being the first to forgive. All right? Headship means be, uh, taking the lead and doing the emotional work, all right, that you need to do in your family. Um, and I think it's helpful to think in terms of how masculinity gets skewed. And I think it can be skewed in two ways, all right? One way it can be skewed is men aggressively demanding to have their way, all right? That's, the, that's one direction. The other direction that it can be skewed is passively avoid, avoiding the work that we're called to do. Does that make sense? Um, and again, unfortunately, we have these expressions like, oh, well, she wears the pants in the family. And I suppose there's some kind of truth to that, but really it's a failure in those cases for men to do the emotional work, to do the loving, to do the making way for conversations about what needs to happen in our marriage. Um, Piercy, and again, this is where I think we need to dig in on this, discusses the indispensability of men. And I've shared this statistic a lot, and I don't have the details of the statistic, but it goes something like this. If you have a marriage where the wife goes to church and the husband doesn't, something like 33% of those kids will be churchgoers when they grow up. All right, so one in three kids with a devout mom but a not devout dad will go to church. When it's the other way around, it's like 95%. But not both. If the dad is the churchgoer and not the mom... It's like 95%, all right? And do you, does your wife ever get frustrated with, you know, you come in and you say, she can't get the kids to shape up. You come in and you say, it's, they feel like it's cheating, right? You can just come in and say, you have a deeper voice, you have facial hair. God just designed it that way, right? It's more, it's more threatening and more authoritative. Men are indispensable for that reason, right? When they, the example they give is going to be followed more readily than the example mom gives, right? Um, And so again, it just underlines how indispensable men are. We are called to be responsible for the spiritual well-being of our wife and kids. And by the way, I always like to lean in. I know not everybody's married. There's a lot of kids in here. You can be that even if you're not married. You can structure your life so that you you are responsible for the spiritual well-being of other people. Right for the well-being of other people. And that means making sure your family prays together. And it doesn't have to be... Whenever I talk to men about this, sometimes, I don't know if this is true in this room, but sometimes men are just so intimidated. Oh, i got to leave my family in prayer. It's not that big of a deal. Just pray for... What are some things we need to pray for, guys? All right, let's pray. It doesn't have to be, you know, some super articulate thing. Reading the Bible together, right? Um, Going to church together. Again, the Elkanah thing. Elkanah clearly is leading his family in this. Um, It means being responsible for the spiritual growth of every member of your family. And again, that seems daunting. So let me put it this way. Don't get married if you don't want to be um, the source of your family's spiritual life. And again, obviously, yes, Jesus is the ultimate source. But if you don't want to be the one who takes initiative to see that everybody in your family is growing and finding the love and grace of God. Um, So think of it this way. Authority is liberating. Or true authority is liberating. 
right? Genuine biblical authority is liberating. Think about how a good coach liberates a team to be better than they ever could without him. All right, and hopefully everybody or a lot of people have examples of coaches they've had that maybe were hard, but their toughness made the whole team better. All right? Or think about um, a conductor of musicians. A good, how many people have seen this? I've seen this. My, my kids have been in orchestra for a long time, and I have seen the difference between good and bad authority. And guess what? I, I'm not slamming women, and I'm sure women can be good conductors, but it's a couple of men who get those kids motivated to be better than they could ever be otherwise. And it makes all, I could close my eyes and tell you there's a different conductor uh, based on uh, that good leadership, that good authority that frees people to be better than they could on their own. All right, power in the Bible is meant to be used to empower others. Power and authority is meant to be used to free others to be better than they could be on their own. Paul says, listen, I want to use my authority to build you up, not tear you down. Right? To encourage you and build you up, not necessarily chew you out. Um, Let me mention a few more things, um, and then maybe if there's some discussion we could have. Um, So how does authority work in marriage? Um, I don't know. You know, as a pastor, I've seen marriages understand this differently. Um, some understand that a man's headship means he has final say. If there's an impasse and you can't decide, he has final say. He sort of has the veto. He has the trump card. Um, and Piercy points out that thousands upon thousands of evangelicals, when surveyed, believe that, but say it rarely happens in practice. Does that make sense? They believe that ultimately, if a decision needs to be made, yes, it's the husband that needs to make the call. But most of them can't remember that actually happening in their marriage, needing to happen. Does that make sense? Getting to the point where we need to do this. Um, People that were polled were said, if we don't agree, we want to figure out why we don't agree. So we put in the work to figure out why we don't agree. Right? Um, Or others said, we don't argue because we reason together to figure out. And again, good leadership says, let's talk about this. Let's figure out what's going on and why we can't get get on the same page. So most that believe that, that the husband has the final say, can't actually remember ever having to resort to that. And let me put it this way. If you have to pull rank in your marriage, your marriage may be in trouble. Does that make sense? It may be a sign that you're not doing the emotional work that you're called to do uh, to be a team and to give yourself to seeing your whole family uh, and your marriage thrive. Um, one last thing I want to talk about submission, and then, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, so if you'll remember in Genesis, um, God does a unique thing to show Adam that he needs a wife, Right? He doesn't just show up to Adam and say, hey, Adam, you know, it's not good that you're alone. But he leads him through this long sort of elaborate process to teach, uh, to bring Adam to that realization. All right. In Genesis 1, there's all this. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. The first it was not good comes in chapter 2. Maybe it's late chapter 1, where God says it is not good for man to be alone. 
So God brings all the animals to, to Abraham. Sorry, Adam. And Adam is going to name all the animals. And he brings them one by one. And I want you to imagine the process, okay? God brings the animals, and probably they're coming a lot like they came to the ark later on, two by two. And Adam is like, oh, yeah, there's these aardvarks. Okay, there's a male and a female, these wolves, elephants. And does everybody see what's probably going on in Adam's head through all of this? You know, Adam's probably looking for somebody to talk to other than God. And uh, he's like, wow, all these animals are paired off, huh? And then God brings about this process where he brings a wife to Eve. Does that make sense? He sort of, he leads Adam into feeling this need of, it is not good for me to be alone, uh, before he ultimately does the work of bringing him a wife. And it says that I will make a helper suitable for him. And I just want to comment on that really briefly. That word helper um, often later on in the scripture refers to military commanders. It's not kind of a a weak, you know, somebody to make cupcakes and brownies for you. But it's like a a strong word. I I might almost say, uh, I might almost say someone who can help you who is a match for you. Does that make sense? It's not a weak and insipid word. It's a very strong word. Um, And consider in our lives where submission, we don't think of submission as a weak thing, all right? Uh, If a company hires a consultant, the consultant does what? They submit a report about what they see and what could happen. That's a good thing, right? It's It's not a weak thing. It's a, I have some wisdom here. I see the situation, and I'm submitting this to you. Lawyers do what? Submit arguments, right? And again, that's not some weak thing, shut up and do what I say. That's uh, presenting your best case, not in an argumentative way necessarily. Scholars often submit something that they've, a conclusion that they've come to giving, given the research that they do. So if we understand submission this way, offering your best insight for another person's consultation, that gives a very different picture of submission. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Offering your best insight for another person's consultation. Consider Abraham. Abraham, is Abraham submitted to God? Clearly he is, all right? Clearly the trajectory of his life is one of submission. But one of my favorite passages of scripture is Genesis 18, where Abraham submissively challenges God on what's about to happen to Sodom, right? He says, all right, God, I want to bring this up. What if there's 50 righteous men there? Well, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? I think it's a picture of what submission can look like that is not just being servile, right? And being infantilized. God doesn't want his people to be infantilized. And I don't think God or Paul teaches that wives should be infantilized. All right. So these are just some of the highlights from the book. I've not finished it, so... Uh, you know, who knows, maybe I'll find some things I really don't agree with. But uh, by and large, it's super helpful, super, super encouraging. Um, why don't we close with just uh, some discussion, some question or comment here at the end?